1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 5,
0: 4, 3, 2,
1: 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.
3: Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Graham, inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I've got George Belshaw once again on his phone and I, doing what I can only imagine. If I tell you it's the worst angle possible, then you just use your imagination at home <laughs> and you'll you'll know what me and Calvin are staring at. Uh, and I also have Calvin Betton. I'm fresh from Paris, back home for about 12 hours. Uh, Calvin skedaddled back from Nottingham to South Yorkshire to record this evening. We're gonna look back at the two finals over the weekend, um, maybe answer one or two quick questions as well. Although I so I, I'm gonna cover a quick apology to everyone who's sent in a question over the last week or so. I'm aware that you have done so and there are lots of them and we will do like a big question and answer session in the next week or so um because I know we haven't had time to get to them necessarily. Um so we will definitely do that. But there is lots of tennis to talk about in the meantime. Uh, there is only one place to start, I always say it, but it's true. Novak Djokovic became the 23-time Grand Slam champion, breaking the male record, uh, eclipsing Rafa Nadal's tie, uh, total. Uh, he also became the oldest ever French Open champion by 18 days. Uh, that There are so many records he broke in the process of beating Kasper Rude in what was actually a surprisingly competitive match, at least for the first 90 minutes, although as so often happens with Djokovic, the scoreboard basically just told the story as he won 7 6, 6 3, 7 5. Um, Calvin, your your overall thoughts? I mean, I, I've made a note here that says, Does this mean that Novak is definitely the male goat now?
2: Um, I mean, I just think that's a ridiculous debate, so I'm not getting into that.
3: Um, <laughs> Great, well, that's the first I... 10 minutes of the pod gone.
2: No, no people have already <laughs> decided, look, everyone's already decided. There's nothing that can happen now, um, in terms of you know, this doesn't make that winning this doesn't make winning the French Open in 2023, being Caspar in the final, doesn't alter Novak Djokovic's legacy for me at all. Um, especially seeing as the other two aren't playing for one reason or another. So, you know, and I don't think even if he wins another five, which he might do, that doesn't really change it to me. It's it's how you want to view the 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 greatest of all time. Although I don't really know why we need a greatest of all time, but same with anything, really. Why we can't just go? They're all brilliant. Um, is a bit odd, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's the initial question? <laughs> Sorry, I've even even
3: thought. for you, Calvin, that is a curmudgeonly start. I'm very up for it. No, just, my, I, my... I, I,
2: I've just I, you know everyone has kind of decided, and that's what my point is that like, you know. Novak Djokovic fans are already gonna think that he's the best ever anyway. Federal fans have already decided that he is, and Chez Nadal fans have already decided that he is. So most neutrals, I mean, weirdly, most neutrals don't think it's Nadal. Most neutrals think it's one or the other. Federer or Djokovic. And again, it's what it's what you take what you prefer to get from how you decide on it. If you decide purely on numbers, then you're gonna say it's Djokovic. If you're gonna decide on what they offered to the sport as a whole and what they added, you know what they did and what they offered as a as a spectator to a spectator, did they transcend the game? Those people, if you think that way, you'll say it's Federer. So, mm. you know, that's the way it is at the minute. Um The, yeah.
3: the match the match itself and I mean we, we were all pretty much in agreement that we thought Kasparud would lose in straight sets, and he did. I don't think any of us thought the first set, which was ninety minutes in total, would play out the way it did. I mean the, the only t- the similarity I had in my head was Nadal-Sverev last year when they were not quite through two sets and there was two hours on the clock already. It, I mean, Rude came out firing incredibly well and like hit the ball very cleanly and kind of took it to Djokovic. But I suppose if you don't want a set, it's like, well, what have you achieved?
2: Um, yeah, um, and that's I kind of guess that's that's what Djokovic does, isn't it? You've got at the end of the day, you've actually got to take the set from him. He's never going to give anybody a set. Um, mm. and especially not people like Casper Rude. And it was kind of a weird one as well, though, because you felt that it the the first set was just massively important to Rude, and it just wasn't mm. really important to Djokovic. There was there's you know, there's a world where Djokovic would have won that match six seven, six two, six two, six
1: two.
2: Mm. Um and you know, I think that's what would have happened. It was basically the warm up, wasn't it? The <laughs> thing what I mean you know the, the the important things I think is that I saw it. Somebody told me yesterday, sorry, that he's six and six, six out of six in tie breaks in the French Open, and he hasn't hit an unforced error. Yeah, he's
3: not anything. hit a sing a single unforced error in any of the tiebreaks he's played at this yeah. tournament.
2: And that's you know that's that's Djokovic through and through. It reminds me of the, the last Wimbledon final when he beat Federer in it. That he played mm. absolute dross every minute of that match except for the three tiebreaks that he played. Um, I, I, in which he I think.
3: I think it's made me sort of, you've always said, Calvin, that he's like one of the best match players of all time. And I've, ne- I like, I've never really, well, I've understood it, but I've never really had a strong grasp on it. And I think that stat on tie breaks is what I understand of Djokovic because it, it's like he understands the situation of a tiebreak. he understands like the tennis tactics of the situation so well and he knows the exact place to put the ball that makes you the most uncomfortable i I guess that's what it is or or is there something else about tiebreaks that that is worth talking about
0: i mean, for, from djokovic's perspective as a whole I think the the pace of the match is just the most important thing as well like he just really He knows when to slow things down horribly, when to get off court for seven minutes, when to just completely navigate. And I I think the interesting thing about this era of Djokovic now, and this is, you know, I know Calvin saying if he won another five, that wouldn't do anything for him in the Goat Race. That actually would do something for me quite a lot. If he's beating Alcaraz five times in Grand Slam finals or whatever, or in big moments to win more slams from this point, I think that is another feather in his cap. And what, The reason I say that is I think the level Djokovic's player at is lower than a lot of the best players in the world at the minute. I think Alcaraz and Medvedev have played at higher levels than Novak Djokovic this year in terms of (laughs) pure tennis. But it's his ability to deal with situations, deal with matches, know how to stay in them, know how to just bend a match to his will, not in the same way that Rafa brings the crowd along with him, but almost in the other way, that he knows how to just neutralise things so well. It's an amazing skill.
2: I think, um, I was thinking actually on my way to Nottingham today about this and whether, strangely now, that Djokovic fans kind of, whenever you whenever the Federer fans say that Federer's the best of all time, the greatest of all time, they always sort of use this rationale that, yeah, but you know, when he won his slams early in his career, he was beating such and such, and they're not top players. Is it is it fair to say that Djokovic has now entered a reverse period of that where he's going to claim maybe five (laughs) or six from about two years ago to now, he's going to claim about five or six where he's beating guys who are not as good as any of those.
0: I think we've been in that realm for the last three years, really for Djokovic. Yeah. Like I think that's the realm we're in now. This is what I'm kind of saying. Like I think the next realm is arguably where it's going to be tougher because I do think, um, I do think kind of Medvedev, on hard courts, Alcaraz just everywhere are playing at good enough levels to kind of change that perception. Where I think they're serious, serious players. Um, but yeah, the pre- previous era has not been, or transition era, if you like, has maybe not been quite so good.
2: I think going looking at this in a bigger in a bigger sphere, what I think this has shown us, and something that I've suspected for a while is the disappointment I've got in the other players, in that these players in this era, which I would say are kind of like the 1997 afterward borns. Like, they just don't seem to have the belief that they can beat the best players at the big tournaments. And many in every era, you've got these sort of situations where a young player, the young players will come through and they're not perfect, they may not be consistent, but kind of like... McEnroe was kind of one of the first and then Becker, Agassi, Sampras, Safin, Hewitt, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray where they would come into these tournaments with full belief that they could beat the best players in the world when they were young and whether it was in fire or in the in the latter stages as well and this group they just don't have that belief that they can do it and the last one, I think, that has had... And even I'd even throw in Wawrinka and Del Potro into that mix as well in terms of whether they can go in tournaments in the world at the big stages, at the latter stages, and beat the currently who are the best players. And Tsitsipas, Zverev, Rude, I guess. Felix Orger is the biggest one for me. Chapovalov, uh, Even Medvedev to a degree... Who I know he's won one, but he basically won one because Djokovic had a breakdown, and he's he's kind of bottled another one, and then didn't no, beat the really. in didn't beat the in the other one. So I think that's notable that none of this era have really shown that they can. I know there's there's you know there's little bit beat somebody and then go on to win it, and these the, the statement wins that everybody who's I mean it, it's a it's it's kind of a couple of couple of generations yeah, maybe one generation ago, remembers Safin coming in and absolutely destroying um Sampras in the final of the US Open, completely ragdolling him when when Sampras was the best player in the world by a mile. And you just don't see that happening. Even the concerning thing for me is that was Alcaraz's comments the other day where basically he admitted that he didn't think he could do it still. Um and I think that's that's tantamount there that I can't I always say the same thing. You've got to in order to be the best the best tennis player to win these tournaments, you've got to be good enough to win them and believe that you're good enough to win them. And I think all of these players, they fall into either one or the other of those and not both of them. Like I'm not sure like Medvedev, I actually think probably thinks he can beat them, but I'm not sure his game he has enough in his game that he can beat them regularly enough. Tsitsipas, pass, backhand aside. Is the opposite, I'd say. Or, or I'll tell you, is Felix Auger-Aliassime should be now beating those players, but he just doesn't believe he can beat them.
0: I think, yeah, Rude. I was just going to say, Rude firmly falls into the Casper. He's just not good enough.
2: Like, just not I good enough, him. and also not good enough. And don't, I don't think he thinks he can beat them yeah.
0: either. I don't, I don't, I don't look at these Grand Slam finals that Casper Rude's played in and think Casper Rude's played badly for who he is here he's played fine like he's just yeah, yeah. not as good as these guys and like that was, that was my assessment of him he's overachieved
2: the one I thought like the one I thought was, was team you know initially I was driving there to Nottingham this morning I thought team actually is the one who I think thinks he could have beat them but then again he's a bit older he's not in that generation really is he no. in 93 is he 30 this year or is he I think he's 28 he's is he
3: yeah, I think I think that's right. He's ninety three.
2: Is not He, is, yeah. he, is, he, is, he is, No, no. You're right. He is thirty this year. He's ninety three. Thirty this year. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't include him. Like he's. That makes him five years older than City Pass. Mm. Um So I wouldn't. You know, and Team was the one who you thought those guys. And you know, he's he's had big wins in close matches in big semi-finals against those guys before. I mean he's beaten both Nadal and Djokovic in slam semi-finals which not many people have done.
0: Mm. Yeah, problems then been the other one's been waiting for him in the final. Yeah, but he's always, <laughs> it's always a big
2: ordeal. Uh, none of those when you watch them did you think this is a belief this is a matter of belief here? No, no. Right. Um you know, he's strangely with him it's been often it's been stupid. I mean he played like one the, the one he played the final he played Djokovic at the Aussie Open which was such a, it was a good standard final. And then team just threw in a game of absolute dross at five all in the fifth, I think it was. And you thought, how have you, after this whole match of like four and a half hours or whatever it was, how have you just gone and thrown the match away in about a minute and a half?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, t- teams are really interesting kind of case in point on this. Is like, t- by far, team's worst performance in a Grand Slam final was the one where, he played the guy he definitely should have steamrolled Zverev which maybe then does lead to a bit yeah. of a belief was he was he able to play that well against Djokovic and Nadal and those other ones because he kind of felt free because he likes he knows I'm the underdog maybe I can't win this but I can play well and kind of push them hard and then when it actually came to I should win this it it kind of crumbled. he did win obviously but I don't know it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly I think that was on there.
2: that was also nonsense they were played in that massive empty stadium as well which like It didn't feel like a slam final, did it? Hmm.
3: It, 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 The the thing of that mentality stuff as well, like, you know, it was interesting listening to Djokovic and Rude yesterday. And Djokovic was obviously asked lots of questions about, like, oh, are you definitely the GOAT now? And he said, like, well, you know, it's not really for me to say. And people who've played in previous eras, like, I'm obviously proud of my success. But he also said something about, like, of course, I think I'm the. I said, oh, it was in the French Portion's press conference. Here's the translation. For me, on a daily basis, I'm the best on court because with this state of mind, it's the only state of mind or spirit that can lead to historical results in this trophy. And I think that, you know, a lot of players will say they think they're the best, but I think Djokovic really believes it. And I just, I walked out of Kasparov's press conference and I, <laughs> I can't remember who I said it to but I said, I don't think he's enough of, a, enough of an arsehole to win a grand slam. And I think you do need that, like, tunnel vision, just insane ability to lock in. And it's on a micro and macro level. It's like the ability to be Djokovic and not make an unforced error in a tiebreak. And also the ability to turn up on, like, an October afternoon in Banja Luka when it's just you and Goran and whoever and grind and be like, I'm going to work bloody hard today. Calvin.
2: I think it's more as well that. I don't know the way way to quite say it, but it, I mean with team like with um Rude, sorry, it's it's also that like we just said, he doesn't really have the weapons. But what you've got to do is when when Djokovic locks into that, you've got to you've got to hit seven winners. That's the only way you're going to beat him. You're going to have to hit seven seven winners out of twelve points. Um, and that's the only way. The only person who has beaten Djokovic on the biggest occasions and out rallied him is is the two. There's there's Nadal and Murray. They're the only two people who've done it. When Federer's beat him on big occasions, he's hit winners through him. When teams done it, that's what he's done. When Del Potro and Wawrinka have done it, that's what they've done. The only people who've gone, right, I can out-rally you. I'll, I'll be more patient than you. I'll move better than you. On And they haven't done it more often than he has done it with them. They've just managed to do it on a couple of occasions. The, the problem when I go back to this mentality thing again is what all of these players have got to really be careful of is that the one reason I thought that the two reasons I thought that Alcaraz was going to beat Djokovic, I suppose three reasons. One that I think he's very very good. Two, again, I thought, and I was saying this to people, I think he. I thought that going into it, he would believe that he was going to beat Djokovic. He didn't, and the reason I thought he was going to that, the reason I thought that he thought he was going to beat Djokovic was that he doesn't have this scar tissue of having lost, having been five and zero to Djokovic in slams or zero and five. Sorry. Whereas a lot of these guys do like, you know, that like pass now must be like 0-4 against Djokovic. So where do you get this belief from that you're going to go on to court at a major, best of five, and beat him when you say you've you've played him four times and he's beat you all four times. And Djokovic, you know, as, as good as he played last week, Djokovic shouldn't be winning slams at 36. Like there should be somebody coming and making a move now because, and the the reason I say that is this is this is far from Pete Djokovic. This is not the 2011 version of Djokovic or the 2015 version of Djokovic. This is a much. If if those were ten out of ten Djokovic's, this is kind of a six and a half version of Djokovic. That he's basically winning on noose and experience and knowing that the other guys don't think that they can beat
0: him. I, I mean, I still think Alcaraz played. Well, though, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't watch him when he was playing and think there's no belief here. I, I understand, like, you know, the crampers come as a result of nerves, but the actual tennis, I mean, it felt to me like he, he was starting to have him. He was getting on top of him. It was good. I'm so not. I'm,
3: I don't know I'm it... actually. I'm actually not sure that's true. Like I said it in. Uh, I can't which podcast said it in because I've done twenty in the last three two and a half weeks. But I said it. He, he didn't hit his inside in forehand for a set and a half because he was cacking it. And like, he might have only hit about two in the end because once he was cramping, he couldn't. And it, it was just because he knew what was coming back and he was scared of what was coming back. And I, I'm convinced that if he backed himself on that shot, it's such a good shot, that irrespective of how good Djokovic is getting the stretch in there, I think it would have been more
0: effective. I think for me, though, it felt like the match had turned a little bit before that kind of cramping came. Like I think in the second half of that second set, it felt to me like someone who started to grow in belief and thinking. Okay, I can get on top of him, and an equal. Eco- and Djokovic kind of said this afterwards. Like at the end of that second set, he was like, "Oh my god!" Like physically, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna struggle here. And it, you know, I, yeah, I but he would, really but he He, he, he think, would say that. Like I know he would say it, but he would say it. But it's, but it's also, I think it is true. Like Alcaraz, you look at him as a specimen. You know that. He would outlast Djokovic, I think, if he got it right. I I genuinely think he was starting to turn and get to it, and the cramp was just, well, I guess, kind of disproves it in some ways. But maybe yeah, but my George, my eyes were playing the playing tricks on me.
2: You can't say that though, George, because he was playing it. But by his own admission, he got nervous because because uh, of the situation, and that that's what I'm talking about. That when it comes to the big occasion, and these players do they have the belief? That they are got that they can do it and that's all that nerves is it's that you don't really believe that you're going to do it or you start questioning yourself that's what that's all that nerves is you th- you know if, if you if you're certain you're going to do something you won't get nervous about doing it it's it's when mm-hmm. a, a, a bit of doubt creeps in that's when you start getting nervous.
0: But also, I suppose there's nervous that then might have meant he wasn't taking on the right fluids all game, and you know wasn't doing the right kind of, didn't get the right salt, etc. That then led why, to. The why, why, you know, why? Why?
2: But why would he not do that in any other match in his career? <laughs> no, like, I don't these these guys have a routine that does that. And do you think he'd have done that if he? Do you think that would have happened if he was playing Casper in the no, South? Absolutely not. It's. It but comes, I think. The
0: nerves between it. I don't know. I, I think there's a distinction between feeling nervous and believing you can win. I, I saw from his tennis a guy who was playing incredibly good level tennis who to me looked like he could go and win it. It's just that his body stopped why, and why, uh, that's
2: maybe where the nerves came in. Why do in penalty shootouts, why do players get nervous? Why there's do pressure. why do they get nervous? Yeah, but why <laughs> it pressure feels like what? a trick The question. pressure is <laughs> no but they get nervous because because they think they might miss they think they might miss and that's that's the only reason you would get nervous because you think there's a chance that you can miss the players who don't get nervous the ones who are absolutely certain that they're going to score that and if that happens then that that that's what nerves is it's the belief that it's not going to it, it's the belief that you might not have what it takes to get over the line that's the thing that creeps in. I think the,
0: the thing for me as well, though, is like, how many matches have we seen Djokovic play over the last three years where it's been so obvious he's horribly nervous? Something like Berrettini against Wimbledon, where you're mm. thinking he's serving at 60, 70 miles an hour here. He's doing. Ah,
3: that. that was strap, though. That was definitely strap, that second serve. <laughs> I just serving. don't
0: think it is. I, <laughs> I don't think it is. I think there is like this kind of nervous energy that Djokovic has as well. Like, I, I don't necessarily buy this idea that. You can't be nervous and still believe you win. I think Joffrey always believes he's going to win, but has had moments of huge nervous uncertainty. In it. I don't think Alvarez was looking at that match and he couldn't win. I do think the nerves played its part and obviously
2: manifested what, what, itself on physically. Why, why did he get nervous though? What he got nervous because of the chat. He started doubting whether he could win. He wouldn't get nervous about thinking if he was certain he was going to win. He wouldn't get nervous, would he?
0: Well, is it nervous about the situation? I mean, that's why I'm kind of using the Djokovic example here. You know, there's no reason he should think I'm not going to beat Matteo
2: Berrettini at a Wimbledon final. Yeah, but Djokovic it's is just... nuts. Djokovic is nuts. It's like, look, <laughs> what about that time when he when he played Del Potro and he kept falling over? He didn't fall. He wasn't falling over because he was <laughs> off balance. He was falling over because he thought he would freak out Del Potro. Like he did
3: that. He did. He did that yes, in the on Sunday as well. Yesterday. yesterday, yesterday yeah. I was right. Say yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, but like he was sliding behind the baseline and like he was like doing the splits and then he sort of rolled. And if you think about the physics of that, like it's pretty impossible to fall over in that direction from that position. And then obviously had to go and take 10 minutes like toweling off all the clay. Um, it was just shithousing rude, really. But
2: I, I just don't really see how you can say it, it wasn't a belief issue when he's come out and said it was this is a, a mental issue. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't. He came out. He said it himself. This is not speculating. He came out and said, "I, I just got nervous. I, I got suppose nervous. I'm, I'm
0: just, I'm more defending him from the perspective of I'm not going to write off. He doesn't believe he can beat these guys at wiz Slam when he actually played, fine, and then just got crabbed. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, understand there's that kind of nervous energy. You don't get, you don't get get to learn after from.
2: two sets. And I, I, listen, with him, <laughs> I, I've got no question. I think he will get over. It wouldn't surprise me if he played Djokovic at U.S. Open and beats him. I'd, I'd still make that a 50-50 match if they play at US Open. Um, which,
3: but... which brings me neatly uh, out of this debate about whether Carlos Alcaraz <laughs> is nervous or not and into the wider question. Novak Djokovic is now halfway to the calendar year Grand Slam. He has been here before, of course. Um, twice, actually, he's been halfway to the calendar year Grand Slam. Uh, once he lost in the third round of Wimbledon and once he lost in the final of the US Open in 2021, of course. Um Do we? uh, What? uh, George. We'll go to George's percentage house and uh, Mm. ask what percentage Novak Djokovic is to complete the calendar year Grand Slam.
0: Well, I'd be surprised if he didn't win Wimbledon. I don't. I don't see. I don't see anyone in that field who beats him at Wimbledon. but Novak doing something mental. Like the young guys aren't good enough on grass. We see that every year. Kyrgios, I just don't think will beat Djokovic. He's probably the best of grass court player who's currently well, he's not even fit Verity come off court looking injured and has been terrible for a while Murray's old and passed it um someone someone in my WhatsApp group this week was trying to claim to me that Murray would take Djokovic if they met in the first or second rounds at Wimbledon like, I just don't even know what planet you're living on like this isn't the same player um anyway so I, I i give him in my famous percentages he's 70 percent to win Wimbledon, maybe even higher like i just think he'll win that us it's crazy he's won that the same amount of times as the french open like this is the slam that <laughs> was, he should have done a lot better at, I and mean, he's had a lot of finals there and not got over the line i think as calvin says i made alcaraz and medvedev 50 50 matches for him we'll see where he can get back to you know I don't think he was playing particularly well, but that's a big confidence-boosting tournament for him, one way or another. There are guys out there who can definitely beat Djokovic if Djokovic isn't at it, and he mentally goes walkies at that tournament all the time. That said, will he have learned from the last one? Will he be in a better place now? He knows he's been in that situation. What happened to him there? Can he prepare for that a little bit better? Maybe, but he's a worse player now that he was there. He is definitely worse. He's declining. Like, he's good at controlling matches still, but he's he's not that same player. So it is going to get harder and harder. And I think Alcaraz and Medvedev are both showing really good form on the hard this year. That kind of makes me think they can stop him.
3: Um I, I'm not sure what that number comes out at then, George, but it sounds like about sort of 40%, maybe 30%, if my math yeah, is I, right.
0: I, I think it's a pretty even favourite split of the US Open between... Alcaraz, Medvedev, and Djokovic. Um, and there's obviously a bit of risk at Wimbledon, so I'd put him down at 20, 25 percent to do it, maybe.
3: Yeah, that's your your that your maths adds up there for once.
2: Um, Calvin, who, what what are your thoughts? I think just first of all, I, th- I was just going to say on the, on kind of related to this, but also on the last debate, somebody brought Murray up up that again. Something I was thinking earlier that if if any of these guys from this generation played Murray in like the first or second round of a major you'd have to favour them to beat him but if say Sitipas or Rude or Zverev happen to play Murray in a final right now I still reckon Murray would beat them in, in the final of a big tournament just because I think he just he knows how to deal with that situation better than they do and I'd, I'd, I'd still think that there's a good chance that he does but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we'll really get to the final again. I mean, you never know. Wimbledon, he could. Um, but um, if he gets a nice draw... Well, look, if you avoid Djokovic at Wimbledon, like now, uh-huh. the guys who've beaten him on grass are kind of like like Ber- Berrettini, but he beat Berrettini now. He beat him on hard court earlier this year. Um, Felix Orgare's duffed him a couple of times, but he's in nose kind of form. Um... I don't really see who... I mean, he'll, end, he'll undoubtedly end up getting... The reason he'll lose at Wimbledon is he'll end up playing best... will end up playing five sets for three matches in a row Um against <laughs> like someone like Naguchi, and then Ger and then someone else. Taro Daniel. Yeah, Taro Daniel, five sets. And they'll be knackered and probably lose to, like, you know... He'll end up John Isner. With... Yeah, John Isner or something like that. And, I mean, to be fair, last year, Isner served... Outlier level quality serving to beat Murray, um, yeah, at that stage. And Murray would have Murray's always beaten Isner. That's never been a mm. problem. But then Isner just played out of his skin. Um, yeah. Djokovic for the career uh, calendar slam. Uh, I reckon it's probably 50 you now. because I think he'll win Wimbledon. Uh, you know, I think he. I think he will win Wimbledon, and then after that, you know, after that, I don't think it would. The U.S. Opens the one. And I'd give him a fifty yeah. percent chance of winning the US Open.
3: I think for me, yeah, I'm I'm with you both, I think he'll win Wimbledon, I'm I'm pretty sure of that. Um, and it'll be five in a row at Wimbledon, which I hadn't really clocked. Like it's it's obvious, but he will have won five in a row at Wimbledon, which is insane, and ties Federer's open era record. Um the thing I think that means he's more likely to win the US Open is what happened against Medvedev won't blindside him. I think he was genuinely a little bit blindsided by how nervous, how affected he was, how fatigued he. He talked quite well afterwards. I remember about how fatiguing it had been to be constantly thinking and dealing with the idea of trying to get to the calendar slam. And I, I don't think he'll be blindsided by that again because because he's simply because he's been there before and he now knows better exactly what his body's like. So that, that I think. Having just dropped a box of chocolates that I brought back from France uh, on the floor. Uh, that's why I think that, Calvin. What have you got?
2: Uh, point of order, J- James. Uh, Beyond board, sort the one five in a row. Oh, no way. That Did was, he actually? Yeah, yeah. That was in the um, opening. Um,
3: oh, good. That's in my copy for the paper tomorrow. So get in. Good to know I've made a mistake already. I'll blame tiredness. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, what was the original question, Spree?
3: Absolutely no idea. I was just worrying about the fact that um, I actually brought my missus quite a shit yeah, gift back to no, France. I've just dropped it.
2: That's what I was going to say. Um, that, I mean, that's not great for the game, is it? That we're all sat here already thinking he's pretty shooing to win Wimbledon. It's yeah. not great for going into Wimbledon. You know, it's like, you know, you need some sort of competition. And again, does it speaks volumes about the lack of competition down in the men's game. You know, you look at it and the men's rankings are really strange at the minute. Because like, if you look, if in like fifteen years' time, if you were just getting into tennis, like, and you look back on like the the this last couple of years, and you just looked at the finals of the slams, you'd think, oh, this Casper has yeah, been quite dominant in that era, and he's just not, is he? Like, he just doesn't. <laughs> Probably, I mean, would he surprise anybody if he ends up in the final of either Wimbledon or U.S. Open? Just, Wimbledon um, would
3: surprise me a lot. Yeah, but you
2: never know. Like this, you know, draw massively opens up or something crazy and he ends up like, you know, like this one. Like, yeah, I mean Wimbledon it's it's unlikely, but he shouldn't really made the final of any of the finals he's he's made and he's ended up there. Um mm. but you know, like the guy and then guys like I think Felix is still ten in the world. Like, how's he still ten in the world? He's been absolutely shit this year. Like there's, there's like he's not done anything at all. And he's still the tenth best player in the world. Like does anyone believe that? Like it's just just a nonsense.
0: Just on the um on the Djokovic Wimbledon titles point, um, going back to that discussion about whether Murray would beat Djokovic these days, one of the arguments I uh heard for it was like, Yeah, Murray, you know, he had his number on grass, he he won their last meeting comfortably. I was like I think just won six Wimbledon since they last played at Wimbledon. Like uh, we cannot take that head to head on what's happening right now. Like, come on, lads, wake up.
2: i to tell, tell you an interesting debate. Who would who would Djokovic rather play in the final of Wimbledon? Murray or Rude in, in order of who he'd least like to play. Murray, Rude, Sitsi Pass. Um, or Felix Auger-Aliassime. I, hmm. I reckon he'd I mean, least he'd like to play Murray. all of
0: them in straight sets. But I reckon. He'd, yeah,
2: but yeah. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon he'd least like to play Murray though. I don't know. Yeah, probably.
0: I, the last time they played, it was pretty embarrassing to be honest.
2: No, though. it was George. Yeah. But but again, I'm coming back to this point. It's not really. I'm not really talk, praise, talking up Murray there. I'm talking about how crap the others are when they play Djokovic in slams. Yeah, mm. I think.
0: For me, the one he'd least play is still Felix, just because he's got a big enough serve that he can make it a tougher afternoon. Whereas
2: yeah, I could take that, yeah, I could I could swallow that, but I think you know, he probably then thinks about taking a heartbeat for sure all day over Murray and Rudy take over Murray any day of the week. But so, so, mm. you know, Felix is probably one of those, though, that even if he thought that with he's got a big serve, he's got some firepower, even if he's like he's one of those, even if he's two sets down. He's thinking there's some bottle gonna happen here, and then I'm ready to pounce. Because two sets down to Murray, you think shit, he's he's not choking this out. Are we yeah. um,
0: are we completely wrong to just say Medvedev and Alcaraz can do nothing at Wimbledon? I feel like I've written them off in my mind, but Medvedev was okay on the grass last year. Felt like he had a little bit of form before playing Wimbledon. Again,
2: Wimbledon isn't like you know. I've been a, I've been on the grass today. I've been we've played thinking that you know we've had three double sets in the last two days and i think there's been four break points in three sets and i'm going to say outside of those games where there was break points every game was held to 15 or love it's easy to forget just how fast a normal grass court is and how and then then you get onto wimbledon and how slow it is mm. and so the actual pace of the court again I'd I'd give them both very much a chance in terms of pace on the court. It's, again, just the movement. But, like you say, Medvedev kind of liked it. And Alcaraz is a year on. um, There's no reason to think he wouldn't be able to move on it. He's such a good natural mover.
3: And he made the fourth round last year. Like It's not like he totally.
2: Yeah, And Sinner. He lost to Sinner, by the way, who's the one player who, outside of Djokovic, the one player who who seems to have kind of half his number. yeah. No, it doesn't played. it
3: doesn't make doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know, maybe it makes sense to you, but it doesn't make any sense to me.
2: Well it's because he hits it flat and hard. Sinner right. can hit three. He can he can dominate he can dominate the court against he can dominate the rallies against Alcaraz, because he hits mm. it flat, and so he can hit through him, but also the ball that's coming onto him isn't a ball he particularly enjoys hitting. Right. Okay.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Let's move on to the women's final because we didn't get a chance to talk about it because of timings. Um, I said in on the WhatsApp group uh, for the podcast that it was an exciting final, but not a particularly good one um, in terms of level, that is, of tennis. Uh, I mean, George, does that really matter? Does every tennis match have to be an incredibly high level to be exciting?
0: <laughs> no, I don't think it does matter. I think there's been interesting finals where they've not necessarily been perfect level the whole way through you do want a match that is close and feels like you come and you know I think Mikova's played back-to-back the best two players in the world two of the best three players in the world you know considering Rubakina went out uh ill of this tournament and she's she's scared them both you know she beats Savalenka, okay Savalenka, you might say kind of lost her mind a little bit in the back end of that third set but You still have to be there to win that, forcing those positions. Um, And she goes, Fionn took a a bit of a scare, really, and got her out of comfort zone. She's an awkward player to play. You know, I've always really liked her, and I've always picked her kind of religiously in fantasy tennis for a long time. I didn't pick her this time, James, and I know you did. So that was a good good pick for you. But I I always pick her because I think she's got a really good mentality, and she believes she can win a lot of these big matches. But she's also got a really tricky tough to play against game that gets players kind of out of their comfort zones and and sometimes that can lead to it not necessarily being the best watch in the world because you've got someone who's changing the spin on the ball, changing the pace of it, not giving that, you know, the same shot twice for a player, which isn't necessarily attractive to watch but is quite effective. Um, So yeah, I think it was a, a good watchable entertaining final and i just hope mcgover stays fit because she she would be a, a great player to have in in the top 10 playing regularly well and she can do well on the grass but equally i know she'll probably just do a groin next week or something because that's just what her career's been like unfortunately but obviously hope not and pray i've not just jinxed her into that or
3: something <laughs> um... Calvin, you you agreed that this wasn't a high level match. Uh, do, do you think that the it's more important that these matches are good tennis matches, or or merely entertaining, or a combination of the two? I suppose.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I think I don't think it was a terrible match either. It was, you know, it was okay, but yeah, it had some excitement in it, which is. I look. In a women's game at the minute, I think it's probably more important that there's excitement rather than quality in mm-hmm. those big matches. They've got to get people interested in watching them again. And yeah. you know, I think so. I think they'd probably, if you offered them, if you offered them a match like that or a really high standard match that ended up six four six four one break in each set, the French Open tournament would would definitely take what they got there. Um, mm. So, I don't think, yeah, the minute, I don't think it's all that important. I think what's important, it's more important that we have some kind of regularity of competition, which we still don't seem to have. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wimbledon would be interesting. I think you've got yeah. three players going into, well, certainly Rybakkener and Schwantek on the grass. So, you know, that'd be a really good final, I think, if you could get that.
3: Do you think that, I mean, you, you've you kind of already answered this question because I know how you feel about it, but um, Schwantek obviously doesn't have much of a record at Wimbledon. I mean, is that just a bit of a an, an anomaly, really, and that actually she's a good enough tennis player, she's been on the grass a fair amount now, she will work it out?
2: Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. There's no reason why she shouldn't be able to play. I mean, I've seen her play very well on grass in juniors. I've said mm. before on the podcast, I saw her beat Emma Raducanu, I think, whether it was Love and Love or One and Love in junior Wimbledon um so i know she can play well on grass um mm. but you know she's she just has these occasional i mean they're not even you know people can play well against her she lost it was it last year that she lost to rebecca uh, it's actually
3: cornet, great I think, wasn't it oh uh, it was cuz she ended it was the classic elise cornet picking her moment to be good cuz she ended like the yeah. 42 match unbeaten run um i i guess my my question is like The the reason that Schrontek has become successful, and apart from being a very good tennis player and having a pretty good attitude, is because she hits the ball with quite a lot of spin. She doesn't hit the ball flat, like a lot of female players do. Um, And does she need to play that differently at Wimbledon, or does she just need to get used to moving?
2: Uh, I don't think either. I, th- I think it's you know I th- I just think she'll end up she'll just end up being better. She's only had really one season when it was only last year when she was very very good, mm. and she just and she she lost to Cornet, but mm. you know that's that's not just her. That's a lot of the female the top female players have bad Grand Slams,
3: <laughs> especially um, against Elise Cornet. In fairness, yeah. Um, <laughs> um... I, on the other side, I on the other side of the game, I guess like the mental side, George, I. Shontek was 6-2, 3-love up in that match and ended up 4-3 down and a breakdown in in the third set Um, and was chuntering away at her box and her level went to pieces and it felt like her head went a bit as well. Do you think that we're starting to see the effects of pressure on Iga Shontek? Because she's someone who seems to spend so much time trying to bubble herself away from it all You know, and and she talks a lot about this in press, about how she just avoids everything to try and maintain her mental equilibrium. That would suggest to me it's someone who, when it does, when something penetrates the bubble, is maybe a bit vulnerable. And I wonder if we're starting to see that.
0: I I wouldn't necessarily say we're starting to see it. I think I've seen it quite a few times in the past and probably... Mm. I don't think in some ways she's that dissimilar to Medvedev from that perspective in the sense I think they're both really good mentally at 95% of the time. But there's always that dangerous wiggle room where it it, it can go wrong and you see a performance, you're like, what on earth happened there? And, you know, I I don't know. They're both players who've worked quite hard on that mental side of their game and really prioritised it in terms of, Having in kind of sports psychologists, you know, Sfiontek's spoken time and time again about, um, oh, her name just popped out of my head, but Daria, yeah, um, who, you know, has been a permanent fixture in her team since that first kind of uh, French Open triumph. Um, so it's it's clearly somewhere they've recognized they have to build up resilience. But as you say, James, you know, at the end of the day, they're all humans, they all have mental wobbles, like Djokovic is the best player on on 99% of the days mentally but the ones that go wrong are pretty spectacular um and there's not a player out there really you might say Nadal probably is like maybe the one who really never kind of leaves mentally like he leaves physically but he keeps going at it and at it and at it kind of relentlessly like a like a farm worker if you like in some ways you know keeps Going at the hoe, relentless, relentless. Um, I can't really remember that many Nadal matches where I've watched him mentally gone. Um, yeah, so it, it's tough. It's tough. I think I think the question for Siomtek just bringing it back to kind of the surfaces. I mean, I I do wonder if there's a bit of danger. She, I said danger. It'd still be pretty good, but the only slam we start to think she's definitely going to win is the the French now. I do think Sabalenka and Rubikina are playing really good stuff and can, like I'd, I'd put them as much favourites as Fiontek for this next tournament, whereas I wouldn't for the French. I do think she is a much more clay specialist than the other two are. I think they're possibly better all-rounders in, in a weird way. and I'd, That's maybe a little bit harsh on fiontek I just mean, I think her highest level on clay is so good compared to everyone else's level on clay that that feels like the clear slam for her now
3: hmm. not
0: so much a criticism as uh, an observation
3: <laughs> yeah quite um right i've got some kind of one word answer questions for us all um which will not be only one word but one name answers um so i want you to think of the player who has impressed you the most disappointed you the most and surprised you the most from the tournament um, we'll start with impressed you the most because it, it, it should be an easy one. Whoever has, um, yeah, I, I'm i going to start and say Novak Djokovic, which feels like cheating because he won the 23rd Grand Slam. But I, you know, I, I, I can't remember spending so much time going, how does he do this? How does he do this? Um, so I'm... I'm. Da- I just have to take Novak Djokovic. I'm afraid, George. Who who would you like to take?
0: You are I'd allowed to take the same guy. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably take Mikova to be honest. though like, I think. Yeah. Well, I suppose she could go in the surprise category as well. Well, that I was actually... going to say.
3: You've. You. I think you've stymied yourself there, but that's your problem.
0: But I think, yeah, I. I think she's impressed me in the sense that. <clears throat> she faced the two best players in the world and made them very, very, very competitive matches. Whereas, like Djokovic has won every match I'd expect him to win. And the one he, you know, maybe I didn't think he would definitely win. Quite a lot of factors went in his favour that allowed him to win that without needing to kind of break a sweat. Um, so that didn't necessarily impress me so much about Novak, if that makes
3: mm. sense. Calvin, who's your, your most impressive player?
2: Um, I suppose it's Kasparud, actually. In the from what I expected before going in it, that you know for all that I've sort of said, I don't think he's a great player. He's had a very good tournament and you know he's had a terrible not terrible he's had a pretty bad year, but I think you know making the final out of it, you've got to say fair play to him. he, he doesn't mess up when things go his way. you know when draws open up, he takes advantage of them and fair mm. play to him
3: mm. um, right, who's disappointed you the most, George, you can go first on this one?
0: Pretty easy this one for me i think considering how well they'd actually played in the builder uh it's got to be medvedev i think it was a yeah. really bad result um and i think it's it's looking worse and worse when you then consider how that half of the draw panned out um yeah he should have reached that final and that would have been more interesting from the tournament's perspective because he may not be the best clay court player in the world but he, he would be mentally a much stiffer Test for Novak, and not one who would have just got out there thinking, yeah, I'm definitely going to win this." So, yeah, disappointed really.
3: Calvin, who's your disappointment?
2: Um, I think probably Sabalenka. Um, you know, I thought that we were going to get the big, you know, thought we were going to get the big final that we wanted, and didn't really happen. It seems harsh because she made the semis. I mean, the bigger yeah. picture. Yeah, George, i probably agree with George Medvedev. Pretty disappointing. Mm. Um but yeah, say Sabalenka. More more yeah, I was expecting that we'd we'd finally get I mean, also seems a bit unfair, but Alcaraz. As well. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah,
3: in so, in terms of like sheer like things that disappointed you. Like yeah, that was yeah, number Al- one, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And i also, you know, on Sabalenka let's not forget, she was five two up in the third set. Like, it wasn't just like you know, she lost to the better player. Like, she bottled it in a massive way.
2: I don't even um, know if she bottled it, James. It was like she got so cocky, almost, that she just threw away. When You know, the game, when the first game, when I can't remember whether she served for it or she was returning, when she got to, what was she, 5-3-0? She was 5-2,
3: it was 2-5, 30-40. She had a break, yeah. she had a match point.
2: And there, it was so casual for the remainder of that game. Mm. That And then, like, maybe after that, then she started getting tight as she does to started throwing in double faults. But from the point when she was 5-2, she was so casual on that that I thought, you know, she's really blown that there.
3: Mm. Yeah. Um, my, I have joint disappointments. Uh, I mean, I agree with almost all you said, but Coco Goff still not being able to play against Igor Shrontec, Like, I, I really want that. I think that's a match that could light up the world and it'll... Make Iga Shonte more famous, and it'll make Coco Goff more famous, and at present, the tennis is just nowhere near it um and she lost four and two and still can't get barely a game off off Iger Shontek... um and the other one is i mean, I don't know disappointing is the right word, but like uh Stefano Tsitsipas... like just put in one of the most awful performances I've ever seen in the quarterfinal, and then blamed it on his sleeping pills. Which, uh, you know... I think you were going make...
0: sleeping patterns then, James, as well, in that is... his new relationship.
3: No, I mean, that may be related, <laughs> but he did blame his sleeping schedule and the sleeping pills that he'd been trying to take to to sort of neutralise it. So, um, they're my two. Right, finally, which player has surprised you the most? George, have, have you... I mean, you've you've got to pick another one now because you can't have Makovar for both.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to pick two of the other semi-finalists as my kind of joint ones um zverev like i picked him for fantasy but i was kind of thinking yeah he can get to the fourth round but he's been pretty crap really um so he he did he did well i mean you know i'm never gonna praise him too uh, vociferously but semi-finals of this tournament was a very good result for alexander zverev given how he's been playing this year uh and the other one I still think had like, Haddad Laaia. She surprised me again. Like, kind of, you know, she's someone who's been kicking around the top twenty, doing quite well on the tour for the last eighteen months, two years, but was typically just absolutely wet the bed when it's come to a Grand Slam. So for her to kind of go and reach the semi final did, did surprise me.
3: so nice, nice variation on shit the bed there, George. That that was, that yeah, was I, top I, top I swearing. I
0: I saw on iTunes the other day we have that we're a clean podcast, and I do worry I sometimes ruin that by just lobbing in the odd s. But so I tone it down so we're not breaking right, okay. Apple rules.
3: Well, you can say I'm not going to say this it again, we're but
2: when we're you, play, is this when we're a clean podcast.
3: Well, exactly. We're a tennis. I don't listen melted. to
0: that carefully. I think you get reported. yet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um,
2: I, I I'm going
3: to go next because you've stolen my surprise me the most, and that was also Beatrice Hadadmire, because up until now I'd kind of. And I don't like this word, but I'd kind of categorise her as a bit of a pusher. And like, you know, she'd never been past the second round of a slam and was up to world number fifteen or something. Uh I mean it's great. I think it's brilliant. Like, um, Brazil is a huge tennis market. It it could potentially be massive to have her doing really big things. Um and she played really exciting tennis and some ridiculously long matches and some ridiculous shots, so um, yeah, I'm going with Halabi as well. Calvin, your your biggest surprise package? I mean, you kind of said Rude a bit, but I'm going to make you pick someone else.
2: My uh, biggest surprise would be Makova. Hmm. I don't think anybody would have picked it to be in the final. No. Right. No one no. at all. So that has to be for me the biggest surprise.
3: Yeah, very good. Um, right, let's move on just to a few matters arising uh, as they are. Uh, mostly things that we've all remembered over the course of the last 45 minutes and I've written down. Um, we'll start with Andy Murray, who won Surbiton last week, uh, despite the rain, despite looking a bit like crap in the first couple of rounds, but um, he got, they beat Yuri Rodionov in the final uh, to win his, well, what was heralded that is his first grass court title in seven years, but given that it is a challenger, and this is no disrespect to the challenger title, but given that his last one was the Wimbledon title, I think it maybe does it a bit of a disservice to say that the service Trophy is the next one, George.
0: It's quite funny, isn't it? Because it, he obviously won that match on the same day Djokovic is winning the French Open, and it's like... I uh, think it's like the football equivalent of Djokovic winning the Champions League and Murray getting promoted to League 1 by the playoff factors. <laughs> like <laughs> kind of worlds apart from two guys. Who, you know the peaks of their careers were you know, so close together. But yeah, I mean look, I'm being a bit harsh on Andy there. He obviously made the decisions to go and do the grass which I I wasn't wholly supportive of and I still think if you lob murray in the bottom half of that french open draw and he plays Thiago save off wild in the second round so he goes to the third round of the french open and that's more points than he'd have got by winning this title but that said it's clear he wants to prioritize wimbledon again he has tried to do that a few years and it's not quite worked i really hope it does for him this time because i think he's played at times this year some really good tennis and the grass is definitely the place where he is capable of playing his best tennis. So, providing he doesn't overdo it, let's hope he can get a bloody seeding. That would be really good. I think we, we're talking off-air. If he can win Nottingham, that puts him around 35th, which feels... Should be enough. Should, should be, enough. be enough. But even so, he, he'll hopefully win a match at Queens or whatever, and then yeah. that might even tip him over the edge. So, yeah, well done to him. And and who knows? We, we, we've just droned on about how we don't think anyone can beat Djokovic on a grass court. And I, I certainly don't believe Murray can either. But I Dare to dream, George. Dare to dream. Dream. Um, to dream.
3: Calvin, he, he, we're obviously... Tomorrow, you, me and Andy Murray will all be in the same place, i.e. Nottingham Tennis Centre, um, which I don't think is anything any of us expected, even a few months ago. Uh, what, why do you think Murray is playing this tournament and not, for example, Stuttgart?
2: Um, I think he probably doesn't want to leave the country. Um, But also, if he wins this tournament with his Surbiton points, he's basically defended... Well, he'll have improved on what he did at this time last year in terms of ranking points. He'll have a net Mm. gain in ranking points. So, I mean, you think he's already matched them, but it's obviously it will be from two tournaments rather than one. But he's already matched in Surbiton last week. He's pretty much he got one two five. He'd have got one fifty for losing um, in the final. Um, he got one fifty for losing the final at Stuttgart last year. He's got one two five from Surbiton last week. So basically, if he wins this 1-2-5, one, he's in. It's a pretty decent spot. He's in ranking mm. wise. There's no real reason for him to go because he'd have to win Stuttgart to get more points than that.
3: Do you, do you, so you think it's it's more a ranking points decision than it is like a I would quite like to play five matches in a week again decision?
2: I mean, I, I, that's what I would think but I'm not privy to what his thinking is. That's just me mm. saying what, you know, reading between the lines what I think he's probably doing Cause if I know how big it is for him to try and get that seeding spot at Wimbledon and he's mm. probably weighed it up and right where's the balance of probability? Where Where does it sit? Um, I worry, I guess, a little bit—not worry, but you know—the the players he beat last week. He didn't beat anybody who you wouldn't think he would beat. He beat some good Grasscop, a couple of good grass court players, but he didn't beat anybody who you'd think that's a, a real good win. Um,
3: yeah, you know. and and looking at the Birmingham draw, and I mean, this is no disrespect to anyone in it, Nottingham. but uh, sorry, the Nottingham draw. You're right, um, uh, and again, this is no disrespect to anyone in it, but. Like Tanasi Kokonakis is in the bottom half and Murray's in the top half, and I, I would say he is the only player in there I would think Murray would be even remotely concerned about facing on grass, and that's like I still don't think you're that concerned about Kokonakis.
2: No, suggest. um and Kokonakis hasn't been making his you know, he hasn't been set you know, putting any trees up recently yeah. either. So yeah. I forget who he is. Although was, he did
3: possibly. Well he played he played well in in R- uh, Roland Garros, like he beat Evo and Vavrinka, and then lost to off in four. So you know he's not playing bad tennis. Yeah. But who um, did he lose not... to last week? He's not been out. He's not day. been out in the grass yet. He's not played. He was. I must. If he was there, he was only hitting because he wasn't in the
2: draw. He was there last week. So I don't but know. yeah, but but he must have yeah. just been hitting.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, because uh. Well, let me check. Actually, you know what? What? Well, Serbiton's a challenger, isn't it? Yeah. So it should come up on the Google widget, but I don't think he was in the draw. Da, 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 James gets on tennis abstract for the 40th time in the day. Um, no, he didn't play last week. Okay, weird. Right. Uh, anyway, there you go. We look forward to Murray. He's playing. He may already have played by the time you hear this. Uh, he's playing a qualifier in the first round. Who I don't think has been placed yet. Probably because qualifying hasn't finished because of the rain, so actually Murray might not be on first tomorrow, which is good for me. He's I not on
2: first it. anyway, there's two, there's two women's matches on before him anyway.
3: Ah, great. Look at that, Calvin, actually ahead of me on orders of play. Outstanding. Uh, right, let's move on. We've got two although,
2: more. Oh. Although, they've taken the schedule down, so um, I, know, maybe. But I wouldn't re-jicking. think that would result in Murray going on early. No. Well,
3: because I, I think his opponent may not even have qualified yet. I think that might be the yeah, problem. Yeah. Um, because I'm pretty sure I saw, like, uh, Hijikata was maybe on court. Oh, no, that's um, Rosemarlyn. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Calvin, you want to talk about Dan Evans' comments, but um, Dan Evans is a man who comments much, and I wasn't totally sure which comments you meant, but I'm happy to talk about whichever ones you like. <laughs>
2: um, it wasn't that I wanted to talk about them. I just thought that, you know, they were interesting comments. Um no, he just made some um, comments last week, didn't he? About one about the the state of British tennis, I suppose, in a way, but kind of mainly pointed at the women's side and um, and also the lack of working class players coming through. Hmm. Um, so yeah. So, so thought... you
3: you you obviously, I mean, Simon Briggs wrote something about this in the Telegraph. Obviously, a kind of big a kind of big read and. Um, you're obviously someone who you've often said tennis isn't a posh sport. You you came from I think it's probably fair to say a fairly kind of normal background and yeah. you worked with players who came from pretty ordinary backgrounds. I mean, do you think tennis has a problem in Britain where there aren't enough working class kids interested or involved in it?
2: I, yeah, I do. I I don't think that they handle it the right way either, and and don't I don't I think there's a um... I don't think it's a sport. I think a lot of people think it's a sport that everybody who plays it is called, you know, Alistair and goes to Eton and in their spare time they do rowing and that kind of thing. I don't think it's – it's not that kind of sport. Um, there's a lot of middle-class people who play it. Um, there's some working-class. I mean, I've coached a lot of working-class players to decent levels. I've coached two working-class juniors to breach number one in their age group very very much working class and you would say in both cases probably if there's a if there's one lower than that probably you know the, the bottom edge of working class um, the problem that British tennis has with working class is they just it just doesn't really know how to deal with it you have, to, you have two sides of it you have the performance side of it where how do you fund working class people who don't working class players who don't have the money to go on the tennis in inverted commas journey Because just this is where I slightly disagree with Evo because he was saying that there's two by just giving five players the PSP, which is about seventy thousand pound a year, that's not helping out working class players. But I know for a fact that so his his argument was you should be giving more players less money, but giving players who have no money four thousand pounds once a year doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't help you become a professional tennis player and give you everything you need there, but. If, if a working class player has a shot at getting 70 grand that is a game changer um and so you, it, it's the eternal debate do you fund less players with more money or more players with less money and there's no right or wrong answer but i know that giving loads of players two thousand pounds and going this is how much money we've put into performance tennis you'll end up with less players who are actually benefiting from anything doing that the other side of the the, the working class debate is this idea of participation which the LTA have zero idea what to do on participation they've had zero idea since they started doing it about 20 years ago they think that participation is basically just giving every every year after Wimbledon they'll give about 4,000 people a, a, a small racket and give them six weeks of coaching courses and then they'll forget about them and they only count participation as new players coming into the game as opposed to what about if we just maintain those players who we've helped get into the game? They're quite good at getting people into the game, I will say. They're terrible at keeping players in the game. And, mm-hmm. and specifically working class people who don't have a tennis court down the bottom of their road where they can just go and play it. Um, there's, there's no route for doing that, unfortunately. And uh, on the other side of what Evo said, you know, he, he made some pretty harsh but very fair comments. About I think women's tennis that, you know, we we're not getting we this is the first I think we won't have a direct entrance into Wimbledon this year.
3: Yeah. That's yeah. not the a Brit- good
2: spot. And a a couple yeah. of players have fired back with oh, you know, we need to focus on the positives here and like No, what what's the positives well, in
3: that? Well man? there aren't any, yeah, exactly. Uh Katie Bolter is the new British number one and she's ranked hundred and twenty six in the world, I think. Um
2: like it could I, also you know, change three times last week, British number one. Yeah. Started off yeah. with was it was it Jody who was number one no it was
3: Radicanu and then it was uh Bolter and had Swan won in the final at Serbiton against Unina Wickmire, she would have become number one. So I don't think Jodie actually technically ever was. Uh, not that yeah. the WTA rankings are live anyway. Um and she's got a lot of points to defend over the next couple of months, so I think it might have opportunity might have slipped by, but yeah, I mean the 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 facts don't change. The British number one is ranked in the one twenties. And she's also defending a lot of points in Nottingham this week. Uh, There is a quite decent chance that Emma Raducanu will be British number one again, like next week, which isn't a great state of affairs. There isn't a lot of strength in depth. It's all very well saying focus on the positives, but I'm not going to... Like, yeah, great for Katie Swan to get to the final of the Serpentine Trophy. Like, that is good. But Katie Swan is still, I think, the British number two, and she's still ranked below... 20 players from the US and 11 players from the Czech Republic and I don't know, five players from Germany or, you know, it's it still, yes, we, there are things to shout about, but we're not going to shout that loud when the, the louder shout should be for what's wrong. That's right. not what's right. I would suggest. Yeah. Humbly. Um, right. Uh, we have, I have something else that I know will get your, um, I was going to say tail up. That's not what I mean. Get your goat, Calvin. Uh, even though you don't believe in goats, as we discovered earlier. Um, the, we have to have goats, Calvin. There are several countries in the world where they're a crucial part of the economy. Uh, even Doddich uh, won his, I think, fourth French Open title, uh, if you combine mixed and men's doubles. His seventh major title in all, uh, with Austin Krycek, who is the new doubles number one. Congratulations to him. They beat Sander Gill and Joran Vliegen in the final. And even Doddich. This
2: is and Vliegen.
3: I tried. I don't speak Flemish or Walloon. Um, Anyway, whoever they beat, they lost. No one remembers the losers, Calvin. History is written by the winners, and in this case, Ivan Dullek. He he made a lovely acceptance speech. You know, thanking all of his players, and and he he it. One last thing, and he said (laughs) the one last thing he wanted to say was to complain about the fact that the doubles players weren't treated equally, uh, that they he didn't he had to get a taxi to practice every day because they wouldn't send a tournament car to his hotel. Um, he was feeling like a tourist in Paris, but to let you all today know, I'm four times Roland, Roland Garros champion, and this tournament deserves to treat every player and also every champion like how we deserve. I hope next year you can do better. Calvin, did did you feel treated like a champion at Roland Garros?
2: <laughs> um, no, but I also wasn't. So, that's, <laughs> um, that's largely irrelevant. I mean, I'm glad he went and did it. I mean, I know a lot of the players had it on their mind. And the players were pretty pretty pissed off at Roland Garros this year and the mm. French Open. And it's stuff like that that is ridiculous. Like, you know, five kilometres in Paris is, is not a lot. Yes, far. sorry, just
3: just to fill in that. So Maresmo kind of hit back and said, "Look, if you if you stay at a hotel within five k of the venue, we will then tournament transport can come and pick you up." Uh, but he was staying in a different part of Paris, and so uh, they wouldn't send the car.
2: But to give some kind of, I mean, I was talking with a few people today about this at Nottingham to give some kind of context on it. Five kilo- Wandsworth is five kilometers from the National Tennis Centre. Right, that is not far. That is not far at all, that and so you're telling people that that's like saying that if if you're staying if the tournament was at the National Tennis Centre you couldn't stay further away from Wandsworth you couldn't stay in Clapham or Clapham Junction which is nothing like, the, like Manchester Airport is I think 13 kilometres away from Manchester City Centre
3: mm.
2: like it, it this is it's just ridiculous and and then Moresmo's comments back where every time I hear Moresmo speak she comes across as so arrogant so dismissive of everybody yeah. on everything and she she came she just fired back and he was more like she, he shouldn't have said this it's not the time and place well when is when is fair play to him for doing it there and you know it's you shouldn't be having to get a taxi if you're staying more than five kilometres away and yeah. also try finding a reasonable you know I don't know what the exact amount is they give the players to spend on, a, on accommodation at the French Open but try finding somewhere within five kilometres of Roland Garros that you can stay that is decent and below the price, what they give you, mm. as well. And it's not just that, as I spoke about, I think a few times, and he alluded to it as well. That you know, just just the way that they operated at the French Open last week, that they wouldn't let players practice before 8 a.m. or maybe 9 9 a.m. was the earliest you could practice, but you couldn't have a car before 8 a.m. So you you couldn't have a they couldn't get a car to get you there before 8 a.m. Which you know, players want to warm up and practice, and you know, warm up before they practice. They want to maybe get a bit of breakfast at at Roland Garros before they go on. But you couldn't do that because they weren't serving any breakfast. It was just croissants mm. and some yogurt. Um, you know, it's just not not good enough for one of the four best tournaments in the world. Not good yeah. enough by a by a mile. And again, it all comes okay. back to this idea. <laughs> yeah, not not good. It's <laughs> it all comes back to this idea, which brought back a couple of weeks ago. That they're just that there's a real feeling at the French Open that all they're bothered about is making and saving money, all the yeah. time. Mm.
3: To the bottom line, I think almost everyone involved in tennis would rank, you know, argue about which one Sam's the best and which one you know, is the second best. But I think universally, most people would say the French Open is the worst one to, to work at, whether you're a player or um whatever, a coach or or anything involved with it. It seems
2: to be universally media. Mm. I I think you know. There's certain things that they can't do anything about. You never, you don't want to see any of these venues changing. You know, I don't want to see the French. You know, there's no way that the French Open should ever be taken away from having a Slam, or that it should be played anywhere other than Roland Garros, which is a small site. But there's things that they can make better at. The people there, the staff there, I'll say, were rude. The staff are rude to the players, now, almost universally. The way that Maresmo speaks about the players, the way that she's dismissive of of the players or any form of complaint is not, it's not a good look. And, you know, stuff like that, allow players to come in and practice earlier. You know, the professional tennis players have some proper food on at the place where they can eat before they go to practice.
3: Yeah. All pretty, all pretty irrefutable. Um, although I welcome Amelie Maresmo coming on the podcast and attempting to refute them, but, uh, yeah, I don't think that's very likely. If I'm quite frank, given the contempt that her tournament has shown for both, well, doubles players and, frankly, journalists over the last two weeks. So, um, have I don't about think, you? by the way,
2: I don't think that, by the way, was just for doubles players. The five no. monitors rule. I think it was. It was all players.
3: Yeah, but I bet if Djokovic stayed 10k outside Paris, they'd still give him. Or, or really, any like top 20 singles player. Quite frankly. Yeah, I
2: mean, but they they tend to be different. They just, you know, they'll they'll have their own car. They won't go and do things like that. But a lot of players, you know, the players who aren't loaded, they don't have that option.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you'd think so. But I do know of one very high-profile player recently who requested a car for themselves and a car for their entourage uh, to drive them around a Grand Slam. And when they were told, well, you can just have a car to move you um, when you need it, they kicked off and said, no, I need two dedicated drivers. Um, but anyway, that's a story for another time for a tennis unfiltered live where I can't necessarily be sued. Uh, right. Very finally, I should just congratulate someone on winning hashtag FTU for the Roland Garros edition. One hit wonder, Helen Garner. Congratulations uh, by oh, edging, yeah. out, edging out by 10 points. I'll run you through her team. Uh, Alcaraz Runa. Zverev, Draper, obviously a duck there, uh, but Sebastian Ofner, the qualifier who did so well, Shontek, Beatriz Hadadmeyer, Yelena Ostapenko, Alina Svitolina, who obviously did very well, and Mira Andreva, who did as well, I mean, pretty pretty flawless team there, apart from apart from Draper, who was probably not a bad pick anyway, so congrats, uh, honourable mentions to TKFC, Stan Tucho, uh, Francisco, Yazda, all made top five. Um, who else? Oh, someone called James Gray snuck into the top thirty, <laughs> most mostly off the back of uh, of Caroline um, where,
0: <clears throat> where did I finish, James? I was hoping to claw back to a mid-table finish, but Runa DMC 82nd, four hundred and
3: sixty-five points. Yeah, so yeah. you were just top uh, of the bottom half yeah yeah you wish just 105 points behind me but yeah thanks to everyone who played um i will do the same thing for wimbledon as always um i if you've got any ideas about how to improve it please keep them to yourself until the end of the us open because you can't change it now so that we can have a cumulative table um but oh god th- we don't have that going do we uh, i
0: don't George, want to see that
3: the spreadsheet exists the spreadsheet exists <laughs> oh, no. i assure you
0: has calvin managed to enter one yet <laughs>
3: No, no, Calvin's no, Calvin's the d- d- discipline with deadlines is his real problem.
1: I was busy at this one.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, all right, fair enough. I think preparing for a Grand Slam is a not not a bad excuse. Um, but yeah, thanks for everyone who played, and we'll do it next year. George, your apology. I have
0: one final, any other business, if I'm allowed, James. Yeah, quickly. I just wanted to say that uh, someone introduced themselves to Calvin in real life, and it's it was very fun, and we liked that as well. So don't feel afraid to. Harass us in no the, absolutely. Harassed well, Calvin, but the opposite no,
3: no. Of being harassed. <clears throat> yeah, um, no. I, I think we should encourage people to if they see well, just Calvin. I I don't want to talk to anyone. Um, no, I, if, if you know, we we will all be in various guises at lots of the grass court events this year. I'm going to be at Nottingham. I'll be at Queens. I'll be at Eastbourne for a bit as well. Calvin, you're obviously doing Nottingham, where and then you're doing Ilkley. Was that right?
2: No, no, Queens.
3: Queen's very good.
2: Lenny's
3: um, Yeah, so do, if you see us hanging around, feel free to come up and say hello. It's quite it's quite fun meeting fans. Um, and I'm told that I'm told that if you hang out with the tennis podcast at these events, that basically you just get mobbed all the time. So I, I'd like to sit somewhere in between the no one talking to us and everyone talking to us. So please do come up and, um, yeah, we'll, if you want to shout out on the pod, we'll happily do that for free. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you very much for listening as always. Thank you for helping keep me sane during the French Open. I hope you've enjoyed all the podlets. I'm sorry for the ones where I had to do a walk and talk. That is just how busy podcast uh, Grand Slams are. Um, most importantly, please do come back next week.
2: Five, four, three,
1: two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.